This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? More dramatic or like sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Greeting the Apocalypse, where each week we stare down the ecological calamities at our doorstep and roll up our bestest local solutions into a newspaper and try to beat them back down the garden path. And to that end, tonight we shall be talking with a wonderful return guest, food systems researcher Shona Candy, who's recently co-authored a study about whether or not we're all likely to get three square meals a day in the not-too-distant future as Melbourne swells into megacity status while swallowing up the local farmland. And we'll also be talking about ways and means we can do things about that. Uh, back in the rotating chair tonight from Sunnier Climbs, the Glaswegian town planning machine. That didn't quite <laughs> rhyme, did it? <laughs> Kate Dundas. Hello. Hello. How do you do? I'm verging on the edge of hysteria. Really? It's just jet, you know, when you get jet lagged and then you start going a bit kind of floaty. Is that what it, yeah, you look dreamy. Yeah. Yeah. You look three I, inches I, above the floor. Slightly confused. I, I thought that was just the second wedding of the year. Third. <laughs> also, also the one gentleman, yes. just for the record. Yes. And there weren't no divorces involved either, I Not understand. Yet. <laughs> okay. But you've saved up quite a few. You can, yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> when they come, they'll come thick and strong. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, and pushing all the buttons, the unflappable Jed McCartney. How are you? I'm well. Thanks, Adam. Yeah. Do you know I told you I did the uh, training on the panel with Brian uh, during the week? Yeah. And I did find it a little intimidating. <laughs> What you do, but it, probably it, a cakewalk for a former pilot. Yeah, no, 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 engineer, but no, it, well, um, it can be. Didn't you used to fly with your own? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Long, long, long time ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We start each episode with a segment we call What Caught My Eye. How do, you, do you want to go first, Jed? Yeah, yeah, why not? I, um, I saw this article probably a couple of weeks ago and I stashed it away for... Um, later but i think it's probably relevant tonight and it's um by uh, susan goldenberg from the guardian and it's uh, talking about half of u.s food produce is thrown away new research suggests um it's quite interesting because it takes the the view that um a lot of it's thrown away because it's not pretty enough uh, for the the major supermarket chains and um they're talking some massive numbers here of um a guy with 250,000 pounds of squash mm. that he was trying to sell at um, six cents a pound and couldn't sell it and ended up ploughing it back into a paddock. Because um, it was a bit lumpy. Yeah, because it uh, had a stripe on it or something and didn't 
didn't match. And this is in the States, I think, this article. Because there's been a bit of a movement recently in Europe to embrace our ugly vegetables and fruit. Um, And I think some of the supermarkets in the UK have just relaxed their guidelines for what they'll accept, um, which means that the farmers are able to sell more than they were previously able to sell. But it's incredible how the supermarkets are able to dictate these minutiae of detail, like the cauliflower is not white enough. Sorry, we're not um, buying your 100,000 cauliflowers. It's not quite the right shade of white. um, They've talked to a number of people who just say if you cross them, essentially, then you just don't get any more orders and you go out of business. And there's some massive farms that, uh, you know, in threat of going out of business because they've dared to sort of question the supermarkets. And Although I did think it was interesting, there are some people... um, Food Cowboy was one they quoted that are, are starting up to sell all the, <laughs> the ugly produce and mm. um, even some of the, uh, I'm guessing it's the sort of uh, um, smaller supermarket chains are starting to have a ugly food produce area. So you can go and buy the pretty stuff or you can go and you know, pay a little Some, bit sometimes less. Sometimes the lumpy stuff. I mean, if you've got all these like anemic but perfectly round tomatoes it's not actually that inspiring you don't i wouldn't call that pretty but when you've got a basket full of all different colors and all different shapes that's that's more you know you get a bit of wabi-sabi happening yeah that's my kind of fruit bowl wabi-sabi you know what it's called when things are a little bit you know not perfect but like they have a a um earthy yeah (laughs) wholeness to them when you think about the amount oops we're wasting and the amount of um you know, fuel and what have you goes into growing that in the first place and then it's all just being ploughed back into the ground or... I know, it's like we've reached this it, peak ridiculousness. Yeah. Of, it's just so... <laughs> I hope so, Kate. Stupid, isn't it? You're an optimist. Yes, unlike you, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> I believe in peak many things, but not that. Uh, what, what did you... What did you dig up this week, Kate? So, you've had five weeks to think. Um, what caught my eye... There's many things. But one has been Pokemon Go. Oh, yeah. You've been playing. Yes. Um, so, are you a gamer? No. I ha- I've Never. S- I've sworn off computer games because if I did that, my life would be over. Because I, I already I thought you might be a bit time. of a gamer. No, no. I don't, don't touch it. Dead? No. Neither no. of you. Well, I, I saw some people before this became big wandering around Mary Creek yeah. uh, with their phones Getting out. Getting the ones that live beside the water. Well, I, 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 I thought little these guys were guys. lost and I offered to <laughs> help them find their way off the creek and uh, they said, no, no, we're just playing this game. I said, well, at least you're not talking to each other on the phones. But Yeah, yeah. so Pokemon Go is an app for Do your phone. Do you need phone. to explain this? Well, maybe. I mean, <laughs> maybe. Explain it to it's me. It's an app for your phone where you can go onto this app and it's like augmented reality so you walk around a map of your neighborhood and you can see all of these little blue things that are pokemon stops pokey stops they're called i met some eight-year-olds at one near my house and i was chatting to them so you know you can go and meet your neighbors (laughs) and you collect these little balls called poke pokey balls or something Pokemon so what balls. just happened, because before in this studio, in Studio oh, One, yeah. I, this was the first time I've actually seen it, yeah. other than screenshots. So there's a little bird in yeah. the studio, and I threw a ball at this bird, okay. and then the ball, the bird went into the ball, and I, he, I, I own the bird. He's in my phone. What's, what's the moral it? message? Just capture animals and right. keep them on your phone. Okay. So it's, I find it very interesting. The vegans from, rising up against Pokemon <laughs> <laughs> As you can tell, I'm not a gamer. I'm not quite sure how it works, but... 
animals appear. Like, there was loads on the tram today. I got two off this guy's foot on the tram. I was flicking the balls at this guy's foot, and then I captured a little blue guy Is with a swirl on his belly. Did you apologise? <laughs> and uh, another wee, like a crab yeah. thing. Um so I'm not quite sure what you do with them so when you have them. Can I, just to be clear, is your what caught my eye? Well, nothing because I was busy playing this stupid <laughs> no, game. I want to reflect upon okay. the impact upon augmented reality apps and games and the impact it has on the public space. Mm-hmm. So you see all these people veering off their normal co- course of walking mm-hmm. yeah. and doing things. Like the guys down the creek. It's completely yeah. changed the way people move around public space. In the last month, it's incredible. Yeah. So... A colleague was down at Geelong the other day and was saying, you know, the waterfront would normally be deserted at this time of year, but there was literally hundreds of people catching Pokemon. Wow. Yeah. And there's been articles talking about how anxious, shy people who love gaming inside on their own are now like out in the street going on Pokemon dates, mm-hmm. catching the wee guys together. I was talking to a lady who said it's the only way she gets her 10-year-old kids out of the house. To go for a walk. They yeah. play Pokemon, they go chasing Pokemon yeah. outside. So in my research on Pokemon Go, it was saying how games... It was the first time we interacted with a TV screen was through gaming. Mm. And what? Before yeah. there was TV, there was... Well, there's gaming, but you're interacting with the TV. Oh, it's the first time you Passively interacted. watching right, it, you're interacting yeah, yeah. with a screen. And through augmented reality we are interacting differently with the public realm and it's interesting to mm. think how that could develop into the future and I'd say for example for 3,000 acres we could develop an app where you could scan a bit of land and it could automate how much sunlight you'd get and how much food you'd be able to grow and say oh why don't you plant this stuff this would be suitable and then like spit out some mm. like very efficient planting plan and you could then plant it and I don't then think it's going to be quite a, so viral, but it's a nice idea in its own terms. Like Pokemon Go is really fun. <laughs> and then I also learned some little facts about general games. So Twister, for example, was described as sex in a box after it was created during the <laughs> 1960s. No, not as marketing, right. as people who just thought it was like uh, sex in a box because right. you were twisting up with other people, you know, highly sexy. And... Uh, Tetris was um, a product of Soviet Russia. So for many years, the state owned the right to Tetris. Really? There you go. Yeah, one last... It does have a sort of minimalist, stark minimalism, like a (laughs) Russian tower block, doesn't it? It does. A A Monopoly was originally called the Landlord's Game and was popular with left-wing intellectuals and invented by a woman. But Um. then a man um, developed a less pedagogical version of the game and during the economic depression of the 1930s, people were more interested in playing at being a tycoon than interrogating tycoonism. So interesting to see how... That game evolved from a commentary upon uh, tycoonism to being one where everyone's actually trying to get the most possible money they can in the most hotels they can and win the game. So what's going to be the next step for augmented reality gaming after Pokemon Go has been so successful? Like how, how will it change how we interact with public space and does, will it impact on town planning, for example? And driverless cars, you know. You're just throwing that in there as a conversation point as well. (laughs) Another little thing that could change our streetscapes. Obviously, barely getting started with this stuff. I've got an idea for an augmented reality game where there are, it's like a fitness app. So you have to run and capture the flag, and each each um, and then the monsters start to come and chase you. And they, if you Ah. make it home in time, you'll hear them slam against your front door. 
That'd get the heart pumping, don't you reckon? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, down the Merry Creek, you could take your wee sleeping bag, wrap it around your shoulders and just leg it with a monster after you. Yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, I can't get the, the energy up to, you know, go running, but if I thought, if I could convince myself there were zombies at yeah. the tail, that you would need, make all the um, difference. those virtual reality glasses so the monster's real. Yes. And he's close. Yes, exactly. That's quite a good idea. Yeah, breathing down the back of your throat. Yeah. Anyway, I, I'm not, not going to make it, so if anyone's listening... Just a um, little hat tip when you make your millions. Uh, what caught my eye? I better make it quick. You guys really rambled. <laughs> um, no. Uh, I was looking at one by, it's called Climate Change Activism, a post-mortem, pretty dark actually, by John Michael Greer over on resilience.org. And he, you know, he's just making the observation that like basically it seemed like the cl- climate change movement had a lot of momentum 15 years ago or even more recently but it's definitely you know taken a turn for the worse and he's trying to pick it apart why that may have happened and he goes through a lot of different reasons but one of them which i think is quite interesting is that and he's just written a post about this too why people with the scientific (laughs) education often suck at politics uh and have an overly simplistic and possibly naive view that facts can uh facts cause, don't matter yeah social change Mm-mm. um and he also points out that as a, as a second point that quite like brexit and uh perhaps if uh clinton ends up failing against donald trump that the campaigns in both those cases have or may fail uh, because they focus on the negative of like what's going to happen if this other per- if this gets in or what's going to happen if we um, leave the EU and it's pretty hard to rephrase climate change the climate change struggle as anything other than like oh my god something terrible is going to happen we don't want that to happen but it's not according to a lot of social change analysis a great rallying cry because it's not what motivates you more positive images usually do you might be for a while scared i've definitely motivated by fear sometimes but uh it's not a long-term strategy and uh so interesting to see how you would turn that around i mean what what is the positives well just the chance of being able to walk in nature and think of the more positive, you know, and see this beautiful barrier reef and that is, not all of us have had a chance it's to do that. It's difficult to have to one have message, yeah. isn't it? Because it's not just one thing. Like yeah. you couldn't have a sun headline saying what the positive impact would be. Like try and package it as a really simple one headline no, selling point. No, that's true, yeah. Whereas and now I think of counterexamples too, like in, you know, in wars, it's like there's bad guys that you want to fight. It's not, it's not a positive message. And you can rally mm-hmm. people behind that. I'd say the Brexit was the negative vote one. And I think Scottish independence, the negative campaign one. One, yeah. Mm. Okay, I'll take it all back. Take it all back, Adam. <laughs> we don't know it's why nonsense. it's failing. <laughs> well, I think more fundamentally, it's like climate change. It's not just like ozone. Like you, that, that was about we changed the, some chemicals in the back of our fridge. They still more or less work as they used to. It's still like an issue. Like it's not the ozone hole hasn't gone away, but we can deal with the problem. But Whereas it's, it's, climate change is about everything we whole, do. Exactly. Right now we're burning it's the whole fossil fuels system just talking thing. into this microphone. And mm. when you think about yeah. how ingrained, like the Panama Papers, that's just been forgotten about because mm-hmm. it was so, so some things are messed too big, up. They're too yeah. big for people they're to get their heads around. They're too big for people. Mm. And you think... So it's, it's easier to ignore. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's inevitable that these really rich, really powerful people will get the way, get whatever they want. And even when they're exposed, you kind of knew they were doing it in the first place. You're just like, oh yeah, whatever. 
they don't even get angry about it. Like, why was nobody up in arms and protesting about that Panama Papers stuff? Yeah, fatigue. Fatigue. And Everyone's and so scales Too big. Too big. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> well, let's try and end on something positive. Thanks very much. <laughs> Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You are on Greening the Apocalypse on 3 Triple R, and in the studio tonight we have returned guest, Shona Candy, who is a food and urban systems researcher at the Victorian Eco Innovation Lab at Melbourne Uni. Her work focuses on future food system scenarios, and she quantifies the interactions between food availability and sort of bigger environmental questions and resource use around it. Her latest co-authored report, Food Print Melbourne, looks into the evidence of what it will take to feed Melbourne, what it does now and into the future, as we go to a projected population of 7 million people in 2050. Uh, let's talk about that as a... Well, first of all, welcome, Shona. Thanks for coming back. Thanks, thanks for having me. Yeah. We, yeah, we really wanted to talk to you more, and it's like, it's been a year now, and another report has come out in the meantime in your series, and this one uh, takes a hard look at where food is coming from, and I guess we often see on the packages of when we buy things where stuff is coming from, but not always aware of where the fresh food comes from. So where does Melbourne's fresher, <coughs> more perishables come from? Well, look, it's, it's a little bit... I can tell you how much is grown around Melbourne and how much it could really potentially supply us. We yeah. don't know for sure specifically where it all goes but basically um we do produce a lot of melbourne's food um in the sort of peri-urban areas yep. and so enough to basically cover about 41 percent of melbourne's food needs so mm. really close i mean that's the reason cities are where they are is because they're they've usually they set up shop where there's good soil and good water yep. and so we actually produce a whole bunch of food um, on our city outskirts. So, you know, there's a lot of lettuces in Werribee. There's, like, strawberries in the Yarra Valley. I think something like um, 90% of um, Australia's asparagus is grown in uh, kind yeah, of the southeast up. areas. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we've, we've got a highly productive, and it's really similar, I think, for other capital cities in Australia as well, for Sydney and for Brisbane. So there are some quite thriving food bowls um, around the edges of cities that, that provide a significant amount of food, particularly fresh food. Yeah. And... Oh, this is maybe a tricky question. Let, let's let's continue on the train of thought where you're going in a second. But obviously, it makes a perspective. It makes sense for food to be grown locally from a food miles or just transport perspective, especially perishables which need to be refrigerated. I mean, you get that from overseas. It's massive amounts of energy, and they're crap by the time they get here. Uh, but what about from um, food shock? perspective like if we have a drought or things is there do you feel like it's good that we have this global food system for things as well does that keep us our bellies f more full uh look um i think the, i mean the global food system for like a number of different foods um so the ones that can be that are more sort of dried goods and can maybe be transported by ship and that mm. kind of thing um maybe it's better if we grow them in other countries than if we grow so the less perishable foods you know mm. it's not always about food miles but it's kind of also about the mode of food transport and how yeah. it's getting to us and so that's why something like you know fresh fruit and veg um is really good to grow 
so close to where it's consumed. Yeah. Um, you get really good, fresh produce. You also um, maintain or create and maintain uh, local jobs, um, which I think is is really important for kind of you know a thriving kind of food economy. Um, and you know having having stuff closer to where it's produced just reduces that risk and improves the resilience mm. of your city um, in terms of its food system. Mm. So you mentioned that a lot of Melbourne's food bowl is in the peri-urban areas and we know that Melbourne is sprawling out towards the open urban growth boundary at a rapid rate uh, to accommodate the projected millions of people that are potentially going to come and live here. So what are the impacts on the long-term viability of that really good soil and that really good land um, to continue providing us with food when it's not necessarily protected within the planning scheme and is at risk from things like sprawl? Uh, yeah, look, I think there's definitely a big risk from urban sprawl. I mean, I know there's a lot of um, tensions in some of the uh, the peri-urban areas around housing and, and agriculture, uh, you know, in some areas, for example, the the farmers do want to sell their land um, mm. because it's it's better for them. It's it's their re- retirement plan, and it should be sort of fair that that they can. But that is actually a result of how much we value food, and so perhaps if we valued it more, wasted it less, all those kinds of things, then we'd be prepared to pay more for the for the food. Mm. The farmers will get a better deal. They'd have a you know a more viable uh, business, and they wouldn't want to sell this wonderful land um, for housing. Yeah, well, we have a housing bubble, and so it's kind of like this artificial um, economy, which is making bad decisions for the whole city in a way, because that land, like Werribee, which you mentioned, that is this amazing river delta of the Werribee River, and you just see this triangle if you look on Google Maps, uh, which is this unique soil. And they also uh, have access to water there as well through the treatment plant. Um, but, yes, yeah, like, and that's just about to get in, encroached on. And, of course, it's probably worth more to build mansions there than it is to grow lettuce. But at some point, we're actually not going to be able to eat, right? Yeah. Look, as I mentioned earlier, we're, we're currently able to, pro- to produce quite a significant amount of Melbourne's food. Mm. Really, it's quite close to Melbourne. Um, in the future, though, it's going to get harder to, to grow food. Um, urban sprawl that we mentioned is going to encroach on those peri-urban areas. Um, we're also going to, um, due to like a larger population, there's going to be a, a, an increased demand for food. And also, um, climate change is going to make it harder and harder to grow food so Mm. uh, animals and uh, crops are going to be more heat stressed water is going to be in shorter supply so it's going to take more resources to grow the same amount of food and we're going to have to feed a larger population so So more resources and more land yeah we'd need more land and we probably need more water because if you think about it um i mean you know land particularly because animals have to eat grass and if you know if that grass is dried out there's going to be less kind of available for them to eat so it really is we're going to need more resources per kind of unit production of food Mm. um as as climate change kind of kicks in and so we we really need to protect those those areas that have good access to water, that have good land, um, because if we try to move that further and further out, it's really going to worsen that situation. Yeah. Just probably a question for you, Adam, from 
sitting over here, does this mean more resources or better use of them? So does this mean that some of the stuff we've talked about with Jody Roebuck and the way he farms, Mm. is that the key to this? So making better use of that land instead of the old farming techniques, you know, where you strip it, let all the topsoil blow away, we start actually using that land better? Look, it... Most definitely. Um, it's it's absolutely a case of, of that. So, for example, things like uh, regenerative farming techniques. So this is where they have perennial pastures. So they basically grow grass all year round and they, they then graze animals and then, then grow crops kind of interchangeably. Um, and those kind of uh, farming practices. Not only does the manure from the animals fertilise uh, the land, so it makes us less reliant on fossil fuel based fertilisers, mm-hmm. which are also increasing in cost. Or if, say, we had an oil crisis, they might, you know, not be available at all. Um, so, but also these regenerative farming practices. Um, improve kind of the water retention in the soil because there's not so much erosion and water loss there's not soil carbon loss so the soil is richer and able to you know keep its keep its nutrients within that are already there to to grow the plants or to feed into the plants Mm. well it'd be lovely to hear after the after the break some of the other strategies that i know you've looked at into in the report at the at the um moment well Things are going in the opposite direction. Generally, agriculture degrades land. In your 2050 scenario in Foodprint Melbourne, you say that uh, currently we can provide about 41% of, Mel- of Melbourne's food needs in our what in our what do you call it the food um, basin? Yeah, from our food bowl. Yeah. Food bowl. Sorry. Yeah. How yeah, far and bowl. how what's the sort of kilometre radius we're talking there? Oh, that's a. That's a good question. It's probably more, I, su- I suppose, kind of an area we're yeah. talking about. So it's around kind of Bacchus Marsh, yep. um, Wyndham, Werribee, Yarra Valley, um, is it Casey, Cardinia and Mornington Peninsula. So that kind of area. I don't have an exact kilometre mm. radius on me, I'm afraid. Is yeah. so that the Greater Melbourne? Basically. Yeah, it's Greater Melbourne area. Yeah. Sounds like. within. I mean, Kui Rup would be less than 100 kilometres. That's probably the further out. Um, and what are you what are you projecting would happen in 2050 in terms of our capacity? So at the moment we can provide 40% of our food needs and what are you are you assuming when you come up with your figures that things are going to continue getting worse or Well, what we've done is we've assumed the same diet. Yep. So assuming no changes in our diet, factoring in climate change impacts, factoring in um, urban sprawl and factoring in population growth. Mm -hmm. And so what our food demand will be, we'll be able to probably only meet 18% of our food demand. So by 2050. Is that our total food demand for our existing diet or just the fresh produce part? That's of our our existing diet, of which a large part is fresh produce. Mm -hmm. So 41% to 18%. Yeah. It's a little bit scary. Yeah. So this is where, you know, we, we, we really need to think about this as a, a long-term plan. What are we actually going to do and how do, we, how do we value our land and how do we value our local food production? Yeah. Well, let's talk about all those things when we come back. And you are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3RRR. You're on Green the Apocalypse on 3RRR and we're 
lucky to have in the studio Shona Candy, who is the co-author of the new report, Food Print Melbourne, which is out of uh, the Victorian Eco Innovation Lab. And we've been talking about how we're going to feed Melbourne into the future as suburban sprawl, climate change, energy depletion <laughs> and soil oh destruction God. continue there. Um, inevitable, well, seemingly inevitable uh, strides forward. And yet you've also covered in this uh, excellent report uh, some farming methods which uh, are encouraging and give hope. Is, are there things that really um, gave you a, an actual sense of like, oh, there's some ways forward here? Yeah, look, there, I think there, um, there's, there's a lot of... I think there's there's actually a lot of leeway in our system for us to um, improve things, mm. you know, like um, things that are actually quite simple. Um, we, we, as a city, I think we do mm. value food. We love Melbourne, you know, we've got great markets, we've got great restaurants and things like that. So, um, so we definitely appreciate food to eat it, but it's also appreciating food um, in terms of what goes into creating it. And yeah. and so part of that, I think, is recognising um, that a really simple thing we can do is waste less food. Yeah. I know this is often parroted out and all that kind of thing, but, you know, we, we Melbourne generates about 900,000 tonnes of um, edible food waste each year. So that that's a lot. How can I visualise that as a, a mass? All right, so that is enough. Um, to feed, now let me remember the figure correctly, um, enough to feed 2 million people for a year. Wow. wow. Yeah. So, so that's half the population of Melbourne-ish. Again. Yeah. 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 So it's um, basically we, yeah, we waste that much and that's all throughout the food chain. Yeah. And um, so it's actually a really simple thing to to waste less if you sort of put your mind to it. Um, I, last night I was actually... Um, trying to work out with my my partner, my partner Dan, how to um, if we can use one of these great new menu planner mm. apps, or there's like a fridge inventory one called Cloud Freezer, and there's another one called Grocer Ease, another one called Out of Milk, and you can like you know list what's everything in your pantry, and you can plan your meals, and you can they can all so match got, up and give you a you shopping guys are list. Well, no, actually we're not. But you plan to. Be. That's the problem because yeah. I have an iPhone. And he has an Android phone. Yeah. And finding something that is cross-platform is actually a little bit difficult. So, look, advice to everyone out there, if you're going to get into menu planning, make sure you're operating on the same system. <laughs> this is really... Because I think that was not... It's not the menu planning that was hard. It was just getting the technology to work on both of our telephones. Yeah. That um, is so alien to my way of thinking, though, having a, f- a fridge inventory. Oh, look, I'm it's actually the, great. What's going wrinkly... That's what I'm cooking tonight. <laughs> well, it's more approach. that we we um we cook in bulk and because we're trying to yep. you know save waste, so we we cook in bulk and then we, we freeze some things and but then you know you forget what's in your freezer mm-hmm. and so then you go out and buy more food that's yeah. fresh and actually you've, you've got a bunch of food in there or you've got stuff at the back of your fridge and this actually you can put in it what shelf it's on in your fridge so no. you're like I've got some cheese there it expires on this date and it's on the middle shelf but hang so on, you you're have like the data entry this. Um, well, some of them you can barcode scan, which is actually oh, quite cool. I think yeah. the first time you've got to put the numbers in, but then yeah. when you scan common items again, so you, with your phone, you just go take a photo, scan, it puts them in again. I'm flabbergasted. Yeah, and there's and there's sort of, it's, it was actually quite simple. I, I think you're getting so excited I'm about I'm getting so excited because I, I actually, <laughs> this is what, you know, this is what I did on a Saturday night. I did a freezer inventory. <laughs> keep, keep in mind, you're a professional, like, I am. computer systems modeler. I am, I am. And, and the freezer inventory <laughs> gets me excited. 
Um, but I was, I was actually quite proud of myself because I'd actually been meaning to do it for weeks. And finally I got it working and I was so excited. I did my freezer inventory and I was like, right, Dan, you've got to download this cloud freezer app. It's so fantastic. And he goes, okay, great. And he looks it up in his, what is it, Google Play, whatever the app store is on an Android. And he's like, I can't find it. Yeah. No, but but I've just done all this work, <laughs> and he's like, I can't find it. We're going to have to do it. You know, we're going to have to do another app. I just I can't do it. And I was like, Why? Why don't they do it on Android? Oh no! It's so frustrating. Paralyzed. So yes. Um, so well, okay. Well, so uh, stopping waste in whatever whatever means necessary. Um, <laughs> and uh, what what else can people do to uh, help us? Make you know make a situation where we have food in our bellies. How about diet choices? Yeah, look, diet choices. Look, we can definitely. You can see in our report that um, it is there is you know a significant amount of resources do go towards um, animal products, Mm -hmm. and so it's. I think in general, like you know, look at look at our consumption patterns. We as a nation, we do eat a little bit too much mm. um, of meat and, and dairy and things like that. So for our health, it kind of helps maybe to cut back a little bit. Yeah. Um, so that's that's a key issue. Um, also, I mean, growing your own food. So that, just on just on that issue, so in, in the report, you uh, show the greenhouse emissions associated with uh, animal-related food stuff and that they're very high compared to other things. And at the same time, you also mentioned that a lot of the land around Melbourne isn't suitable for any other use, so the sort of Western Plains I guess you're talking about. So I I don't really know how to approach that dilemma because if, like, we want to use that land productively and like Jed was alluding to before, there seem to be regenerative ways of using sheep and cattle, which if you miss the show, go back and listen to Jodie Roebuck. It's one of our favourites in Greening the Apocalypse. But uh, we can't do we can't grow our crops there so do th- there is still some place from a sustainability perspective possibly for some meat or, or oh, animal products and diet but probably less yeah any, definitely in any definitely yeah. um there's definitely a place for it in our diets i just um we just may not have should be well for our health we yeah. possibly shouldn't be eating it in the in the amounts that, that yeah. we are but and yeah probably environmentally too yeah environmentally yeah. look it does we did do um, like the land and the water um, required to produce livestock, and, and it is high. Mm. Um, I think though that that is only that's one of kind of a suite of options yeah. that we really need. There's a, there's a number of things we need to do to make our food system more sustainable. Diet is mm. one. Um, reducing waste is another. Yeah. Um, simply uh, appreciating food more is mm. is quite. Is quite important, and uh, there's research out of um, ANU, I think, that's that says that people who who grow their own food uh, generally live a more sustainable life. Like I don't know which is the sort of the chicken or the egg kind of yeah. thing in that situation, but even they say that people who do grow their own food because they have an appreciation of what it takes to grow the food, mm. that they waste less, even if it's not. The food they've grown, they might yep. waste less of the food that they bought from the supermarket. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of a, a, a better connection with the food. And, you know, when you grow something, you kind of, you know, coax a few tomatoes out of your tomato plant and you realise that on those hot days it gets really, really dry in the summer and so you've got to water and mm. how much you really have to water to keep it going. Um, yeah. I think that's – and also I think 
the appreciation that comes to having food um, in your backyard or on your balcony, mm. somewhere where you can just go out and pick it yeah. and pop it. It's that also, yeah, links back to the waste because yeah. it's just continuing to grow. You're not mm. having lettuce going um, sort of droopy in your fridge mm. and all slimy and horrible. Yeah, you yeah. can just pick it fresh. Yeah. And, and probably... we need a whole built form system change so that the agricultural land that's valuable is protected in the planning scheme and new developments have enough area for people to be able to grow their own fruit and veg. Look, I think so. It's that real incorporating these um, urban, like food growing into the urban areas. So um, because that is not only going to provide some food to people, but it's also going to make the city greener, which is going to cool the city Um, because we've got issues with climate change as the weather gets hotter. Cities, like, you know what it's like on a a hot summer's day in Melbourne. But yeah, it's uh, basically... Bit of smog holding it in there like a blanket. Yeah, we've got the whole, what's called the urban heat island effect. So not only does it heat up during the day because it absorbs all this heat, at night it doesn't cool down because all these sort of concrete surfaces sort of radiate across each other. You know what it's like when you're in the city on a hot night, it just doesn't cool down. But if you're out in the country, even if it's been stinking hot, it usually cools off a lot more. Mm. Um, in the evening. And so having green spaces in cities can really um, reduce that urban heat Mm. island effect. They also um, can be used for stormwater mitigation. So, you know, that's another climate change issue is um, rain events or flooding. We've all seen what the bottom of uh, Elizabeth Street looks like. And when there's been a, like a really big rainstorm, usually people are wading knee deep through the water. So if you've got some ways of catching that water before it gets all the way down to the bottom of the street, then, you know, that's a way. And green spaces are a way of doing that. Like there was research at, um, done at Burnley, the University of Melbourne, mm-hmm. to, um, to look at vegetable rain gardens. Yep. So they collected water off the roof and they ran it through a vegetable rain garden yep. to, as as a stormwater mitigation yep. um, method. Yeah, right. you weren't allowed to do that a few years ago. It had to be natives in these the things which were government subsidised. Where you put your, yeah, you put your damn okay. um, pipe into into them and slows it. Yep, but that's good news. You can. Um, I've got a question for you. Do you, I, I have mixed reaction to infill development because on the one hand it stops the suburban sprawl, on the other hand it takes away the ability to have that little bit of self-reliance and you can grow with a lot less resources than you can out in the aforementioned Werribee or wherever um, in the backyard if you're good at it because you've got all the organic, all your compost you're making and you can do it with a lot less water because you can mulch. And if you're one of the lucky ones who happens to live in a house in the Yeah, suburbs. well, that's what I mean. Yeah. So, like, do you have a... What do you, what do you reckon... <laughs> Should we be allowed to grow our own or should we just be all crammed in? And We don't have to be crammed in. It's not one or the other. You don't have to live in a house yeah. or be crammed in. You can have decent quality, medium density development with yeah. good access to open space. Actually... I don't understand why Melbourne cannot get this. It does not have to be a high rise or a flipping bungalow in a massive lot. Actually... There is a medium ground. There's actually a really, um, I find a really interesting house in, in Coburg um, that I've read about and I have yet to check out myself. Yeah. Um, But it's by um, a guy from Nest Architects and he basically, they purchased someone else's um, backyard to build a house and he's an architect himself. So they purchased someone else's backyard and, but because he still wanted good standard of living, well, it's also cheaper. So with, you know, housing prices, he he could buy a piece of land that wasn't your normal quarter acre block so he could afford it. 
And But with his family, he needed space, like garden space, and he also needed house space. So he did this amazing rooftop garden. Yeah. And you can look it up. It's it's really quite beautiful. And you can mm. sit up there and you can look over the, you know, the the, how, the rooftops in Coburg. And I, I, I think that's a really interesting um, mm. kind of design for how to address multiple problems. There's loads and loads of interesting ways that we can retrofit the city. And there's lots of nuanced ways, and it doesn't have to be a big dichotomy of one thing or another thing. All right. <laughs> taken. Point taken. <laughs> You're on Greening the Apocalypse on 3 R as we commence the wrap-up. Shona, thank you so much for being a great guest. And can you tell us uh, what, where we can download the report and anything else you'd like to mention? Um, yeah, well, you can download the report from the Vale website, which is at www.ecoinnovationlab.com. And then you, we can also download our lovely infographics, so which are quite nice and handy and pretty to look at and use in presentations if you want to. Um, so there's all that kind of information there. Um, if you need it, yeah, you can also contact us at, yep. at Vale if you'd like more information. We will put all your... And don't forget your Saturday night activity fridge apps. <laughs> I know, it's pretty exciting. Well, we'll put a link to the report on the show notes page. I guess we'll just thank you, Shona. Thank you for coming in again. Uh, it was a pleasure. Brilliant. And Jed, uh, thank you for pressing all the buttons correctly once again. My pleasure. Kate, do you know what's coming up next week? Um, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you tell us. It's Zainal. Ah, Zainuddin. I hope I said that right. But she's another food researcher who's going to... So it's very much an extension of this conversation. Um, and she's going to be... She's been doing research into how much people have been growing in their home gardens and quantifying that. So that'll really flesh out the story. I have been Adam Grubb, and this has been Green the Apocalypse. And until next week, have all the fun. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.